0: Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex positive space. So, if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman. Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns.
1: And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The content of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward, but we hope that listeners will sit with this discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversations to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body and if needed, turn off the podcast and consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk or reaching out to the Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673.
0: Today's quickie topic is primary prevention of sexual and relationship violence. We have a few quickie definitions for you. So primary prevention is what we can do to prevent something from happening before it occurs. Whereas secondary prevention, its aim is to reduce the impact of something that has already happened.
1: Tertiary prevention is the long-term response after the incident has occurred to deal with the lasting consequences. And sex can have multiple different meanings and can mean different things to different people. For today's context, we will be referring to the physical activity between people that involves pleasure, excitement, and intimacy, and often involves genitals, but not always. When we're discussing the other meaning of sex, which refers to a set of biological attributes in a human, then we will cite this.
0: Great. I think it's good to have those, like, out of the way but I want to like dive into primary prevention a little bit more and what that looks like. So primary prevention is looking at the underlying root cause of sexual and relationship violence. To consider like, how do we stop these things from happening? Desmond Tutu has an appropriate quote connected to this. There comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. April, when you were growing up, What messages did you receive about how to prevent sexual and relationship violence?
1: Yeah, I think most of what I heard growing up made it seem like I could prevent violence from happening, mostly by controlling my personal behaviors, whether that was wearing more modest clothing or not drinking too much at a party or not walking alone at night. Same here.
0: Um, All of those messages I received as well. A lot of blaming went on in our primary prevention game um, back then. And those beliefs and oppressive views still exist today. I want to talk about sexual and relationship violence really from a public health perspective, you know, to shift how we see these issues and to focus on, you know, how to prevent someone from causing harm in the first place. It's important to start here because this entire podcast is really focused on underlying root causes and protective factors, you know, which, you know, those protective factors can reduce the risk that harm occurs, but it doesn't really guarantee it, right? Because it's not the cause of the harm. Since you'll see this theme throughout, like this is why we really wanted to start here. You know, I think it's uh, important to, you know, acknowledge that secondary Prevention is about, you know, how we respond in the immediacy after. So if someone goes to the emergency room um, and gets services and has care, whereas like the tertiary stuff is like long-term therapy or some of the policy shifts, just to sort of name those, those differences from primary prevention.
1: That's great. And I think primary prevention is a really great place to start. We're going to give you all a very familiar example to think about. So, you know, COVID-19 is still very... Top of mind for a lot of people. And so the root cause of COVID-19 disease is actually the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You know, everybody talks about COVID-19, but, but SARS-CoV-2 is really what causes COVID-19. So to prevent getting COVID-19, we need to get vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2, right? You can try to reduce your risk by wearing a mask. Avoiding people who've had the virus, but really it's the virus that's causing the harm, and that's what we need to address directly. Obviously, this is a little more nuanced now as the virus mutates and new variants arise and they are evading the original yes. vaccines. <laughs> but I think you can get the point, right? Preventing the virus from being able to cause illness in the first place is so much more desirable than than putting all these other risk reducing measures in place that aren't still really fully protecting people.
0: Yeah. So you want to target the thing that's like underlying and maybe still do some of these other things to like protect yourself. But like, that's the, the virus that we really need to like get at. Right. And so that's why I think COVID is a good example because when you think about sexual violence and relationship violence, like what, what could possibly be the, the virus in this case? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're looking at COVID, maybe we sort of know instinctually it's the virus. Right. But I don't think that's always something that we talk about when it comes to sexual and relationship, uh, violence. It's like, what's the underlying root cause here? it's oppression or unjust treatment um, at every level, really, that contributes to all forms of harm and violence. You know, oppression happens at the ideological level. So the ideas and societal norms, those sort of things, the institutional levels. So at various different institutions like schools and government, interpersonal, so between you and I, April, or between family um, and internalized. So that really sort of happens Within us, and so some examples of oppression that you know we all hopefully know about um, are racism, sexism, heteronormativity, xenophobia, ageism, restrictive gender and social norms, etc. Like we could go on, mm-hmm. but like those are the underlying root causes of all forms of of violence, and that includes sexual and relationship harm.
1: Got it. So, so oppression—that's what we're naming. Yeah. That's the big. This is the big root cause. It's pretty big.
0: Yeah. We'll talk about that a little more, but can you start by clarifying what do you mean by harm? Yeah, you're going to hear me say harm quite a bit. Um, and I think, you know, when I talk about harm, it's just a number of different ways people can experience injury, right? Injury is inflicted and this can be emotional or physical, you know, and quick activation warning here. I'm going to give some examples of different types of harm, uh, which could be difficult for some examples might be microaggressions, which can include Micro invalidations, micro insults, um, and preferential treatment. You know, and then there is bullying, stalking, emotional abuse. Which can include so many different things. Name calling, putting someone down, humiliating someone, constantly pushing someone's boundaries, you know, intimidating someone to get something, um, using your privilege to gain power. And then there's the physical harm that I'm talking about, which, you know, might be just a little bit more obvious. Um, but I want to start with slapping, you know, arm twisting, punching, pushing, kicking, threatening violence, strangulation and even death, right? Um, all of these are included in the physical harms that can happen. Um, just to name a few, I'm sure there's some that I missed there as well. But um, there are also sexual harms, which can include crossing someone's boundaries, sexual harassment, sexual assaults, and rape. And of course, you know, just to sort of go into a little bit of detail here about, like, definitions, we want to just make sure that, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, similar definitions here. Um, The definition of sexual assault and rape, you know, can range for different people and in different contexts, you know, from the personal to the legal. You know, when I use sexual assault, um, I really kind of use it as an umbrella term here to include any unwanted, non-consensual sexual contact that, you know, may or may not be used for sexual gratification or power. And for me, like rape in this context, uh, from you know my perspective, is a little bit more specific um, in the type of sexual assault. But you know sometimes the words get used interchangeable. Um, legally, they often have different definitions depending on jurisdiction. Would you add anything to that list of harms? I know I just sort of talked on forever about it, but like I wanted to sort of check in to see if like I missed anything.
1: I mean, I think that was a pretty comprehensive list. <laughs> I think the other examples that come to mind are gaslighting mm-hmm. or really making someone question their reality yeah. or what they're experiencing. And then any use of a weapon, mm. like a gun, a knife, regardless of whether they're used in a threatening manner yeah. or even to inflict harm. But I think that those are a couple other examples. Yeah,
0: you're right. You know, um, I think that gaslighting is being used quite a bit lately. And so I think um wanted to... Definitely keep that in mind as well. So uh, let's think a little bit about the context of one ideologically oppressive belief instead of trying to look at all oppressive ideas and beliefs, because that can just be overwhelming. You know, for example, in some cultures, like the one I grew up in, sex is not to be discussed, right? The sex talk I got from my mom was French kissing is like saying yes to sex. So if you don't want to have a baby, avoid any kind of encouragement of having sex, mm-hmm. right? So religion can play into this belief, but the media does as well. Religion often says that, you know, you've got to keep sex in the context of marriage. You know, that's the only way. It's for creating a family. You know, don't talk about it because this might lead to having it. You know, in some religious spaces, it can, you know, create shame if someone is having premarital sex um, or if they masturbate, you know, like how we see sex portrayed in romantic films, TV, and even in porn, you know, fosters this ideology. You know, we don't see folks talking about sex, not about like what they like or dislike, and definitely not getting consent in a lot of these spaces. You know, this is rarely depicted in a lot of the, the things that, you know, I grew up with. And I think even now, like, Maybe we're getting a little bit better, but I don't think in all, all of these different mediums, like we're seeing folks talking about, like, what they like, what they don't like, and getting consent. And so I, I want to just, you know, acknowledge that, that there may be some positive representation out there, but it's probably not happening enough. We also see that media is still predominantly heteronormative and centers cisgender monogamous relationships. You know, those, um, are intersecting oppressive beliefs. The idea that sex is just naturally happens in the bedroom. Is adapted in our institutions as well. I mean, look at our sex education in this country. It runs the spectrum from abstinence only to a more comprehensive approach. You know, and it varies based on school, of course, but, you know, most are often limited to the biology of just how things work. You know, looking at like reproductive systems and they're not really centering pleasure or connection, but around the reproductive process um, and the negative effects, right? Like they talk about Getting pregnant or, you know, having a, getting an SDI. And so it's important that there's this huge amount of information that's missing, like pleasure, boundaries, communication, and, you know, expanding the spectrum of gender identities and sexual orientations and the different relationship models, right? So we're not talking about sex. Um, and we're definitely not talking about pleasure when it comes to our sex ed. And that's like how institutions you know, reinforce the oppressive belief that it's not okay to talk about sexual pleasure.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's really true. And, you know, I, I grew up in California. So you would think I got a pretty expansive or inclusive sex education. Granted, this is many years ago now. So I can't <laughs> speak to what the content of the current programs are in California. But for me, it was still primarily heteronormative and focused on don't get pregnant. And here are all the scary STIs you can get. So it's just better if you don't have sex. Kind of thinking about the different sex ed programs in the country, did you know that only 18 states have laws that require sex ed to be medically accurate? Wow. No, I did not know that. Right. That means 32 states can teach whatever they want during their sex ed. Scary, Right. And only 18 states have laws that require sex ed to discuss birth control. Only 10 states require discussion of LGBTQ identities and relationships to be inclusive and affirming. There are six southern states that either prohibit sex educators from discussing or even answering questions about LGBTQ plus identities and relationships, or actually require sex educators to frame LGBTQ plus identities and relationships negatively. Hmm. So these laws further stigmatize LGBTQ plus youth and leave them without information they need to protect their sexual health, which puts them at greater risk for STDs, pregnancy
0: and unhealthy and abusive relationships. So those numbers are startling. However, it shouldn't be surprising then that we, you know, don't get factual sex-positive education that, you know, reinforces these oppressive beliefs, you know, by judging others, you know, really for talking about sex or when they do talk about sex, we get judged and shamed, you know, for how we engage in sex. You know, look, my mom had good intentions for telling me that French kissing was the gateway drug to sex, but this was all I got for sex talk. And then it was never to be discussed again. And in school, you know, I only learned about fallopian tubes in the uterus because they separated me from my peers with penises, right? Like we didn't get the same information, or at least not that I'm aware of. You know, shaming and judging happens in our churches, our mosques, our synagogues, our schools, our homes, um, and within our friendships, right? I mean, this can then turn um, into people internalizing that they are bad for engaging or enjoying any type of sex, or for things that they do like during sex. You know, I internalized that I shouldn't like sex, because anyone who liked sex did not have good morals, and then I'd get pregnant. You know, I want to be inclusive and say that it's also okay if you choose not to have sex. And this is a decision that might be informed by your religion, you know, but it can also be harmful to internalize these beliefs. Because if we have natural urges and give into them through sex or masturbation, then we'll feel like we're bad people. And that can come out as shaming others for their individual choice. You know, we replicate this for all different types of ideologies. And, you know, all of them are connected, right? So harmful, racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, ableist, other gender and socially repressive norms. These beliefs are reinforced in all of our institutions and in our relationships and how we view ourselves. Um, if someone steps outside of these boxes that society has built, then it can lead to all forms of harm and violence.
1: Okay, so let let me just make sure I get this this right. You're talking about oppressive ideologies in our culture. They get adapted in our institutions, like schools, government programs, policies, and then they get passed on interpersonally through through relationships, and then can lead to self oppression or self hatred. So, mm-hmm. if someone is reinforcing these beliefs in their interpersonal relationships, it might look like racist microaggressions, harassment, sexual assault, other assault, and um other harms. It's helpful yeah. to think about it this way, you know that I think that kind of just puts it all into context, makes it click a little bit more yeah. um but yeah. that that sometimes it makes me feel a little bit out of control about whether or not violence can happen to us or That we love.
0: Yeah, I get that feeling out of control. I also just want to say, like, that was a really good um, way of summarizing what I said. But yeah, not being able to, like, you know, find that vaccine, right? It'd be much easier if we had, like, just a vaccine. But this is, like, really deep seated, you know, within our history. And so it's really hard for us to feel like we have an impact on making any kind of difference, you know. But a few ways that we can have control are really to call in folks around us for reinforcing these harmful social norms. When people shift policies um, to be more inclusive and, you know, to demand, you know, more representation in our media, we can be upstanders and acknowledge the harm that microaggressions cause or those racist or sexist jokes our friends are telling. You know, we can even step in if we see someone who is at risk or who has experienced harm to be supportive. NYU has a great training on active bystander intervention called Action Zone that talks about various different ways to call in our community to shift these behaviors. There are also places like the Center for Anti-Violence Education and Right to Be that also provide training in this area off campus. We will provide information about all of these programs in our show notes.
1: Yeah, I actually took the Action Zone training and would recommend it to everyone. I learned several tips for deciding if and how to intervene in a potentially problematic situation. And believe it or not, confronting the aggressor is not the only thing that you can do. So now when I'm out and about, I find myself much more aware of people and situations going on around me. And whenever I see something that just doesn't look or feel right to me, I I pause and I try to to pay close attention, kind of listen Mm. to conversations and just keep an extra close eye and ear and try to decide whether, whether someone's in need of an outsider intervening.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you took that uh, training. I haven't had the opportunity to take it, but I definitely encourage. I've taken a few others um, off campus, the ones that I mentioned before. So I encourage folks to, to take those as well. But, um, it, it's really a hard thing to do to intervene. You know, I have decided to intervene a few times. Sometimes it's gone well and other times it's kind of been a complete disaster. You know, I'll share that one New Year's Eve. I headed home on the A train and attempted to intervene with a fellow passenger who was getting sexually harassed. And instead of diffusing the situation and, you know, being the hero, it really just caused more harassment um, and the harassment turned towards me as well, right? So um I was called all kinds of names and it was pretty brutal for, you know, there's this section of the A train between uh, 59th Street and 125th Street that was just like nightmarish because it was like we were stuck. You know, and this initial person who was being harassed really looked at me like they were irritated, um, because I had made it worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hard because you, you know, clearly had good intentions
0: and we're, we trying to be helpful. Yeah. You know, you got to practice sometimes because <laughs> it was not good, but I have, I have done it And, you know, it's, it's been better. I think I've, I've improved. Um, in hindsight, I think I probably should have just, you know, struck up a conversation with a person who was being harassed in um, interaction with them might have helped a little bit. I had a recent experience, actually, where I did this and it was a bit more successful. You know, I saw uh, a woman presenting person on the platform at like 72nd Street on the two train. She was being harassed by a male presenting person. And I just went up to her and I said, I know you, don't I? And she looked so incredibly confused um, because she, she's had on one side this male person like harassing her. And on the other side, I'm like, you know, touching her arm, trying to get her, her attention. And so I said it a second time, like, we know each other, right? <laughs> Let's chat over here. And then she understood. And we moved away from the person harassing her.
1: Yeah, I really, I like that idea. I'm glad that 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 worked the second time, you know, and I I like that idea of striking up a conversation with the person who's perceivably at risk, you know, you're helping remove them from the situation, and you're also not actively engaging with the aggressor, which could Mm -hmm. encourage behaviors to escalate, kind of like what you shared in that first example.
0: Yeah. So those are just a couple of ways to, to do upstander intervention, you know, with strangers. But, you know, I want to say that, like, you know, we have more control often with the people in our lives, like our family and friends. Sometimes this is easier and other times it's much harder. We often worry with our family and friends that we might be rejected or abandoned if they don't agree or if they're offended by us sort of acknowledging something that isn't Right. So, Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, I've, I've had to do this with a few people who continued to use the word gay as a descriptor. Mm -hmm. Um, and that really started bothering me probably back in high school, I had a friend that kind of showed me the ropes of how to to do this sort of upstander intervening. And, you know, I would kind of try to start light and say something like, oh, I didn't know museums could have sexual orientations or, you know, whatever whatever they were talking about. Or I would say, I'm not familiar with that term in this context. Can you just dis- use a different word to describe what you're trying to say? Mm-hmm. Um, and that usually kind of catches them off guard enough to get them to realize what they've said. And then, you know, I can politely remind them not to turn a piece of someone's identity
0: into an insult in the future. Mm, That was really good. Yeah. I had to do this with a family member during the pandemic lockdown when they, they had said a racist comment about people in the AAPI community. This is someone that I love. And it was really hard to do, but I didn't feel like I could let it go. Right. I said something like, hey, that word is really problematic and racist. Yeah, the family member um, did not have a great reaction to that. And, you know, it's had a really big impact on my relationship with this person. You know, um, I've had a little bit of time to think about it. And I think that, you know, I want to re- redo my approach. Um, if I could, I might say something um, a bit different. If I were to sort of experience this again, I would, I would probably frame it um, this way. I would be like, I'm wondering if you thought of, you know, how that word would feel to say in front of someone who identifies in that community, or I wonder if there's a different word that could be used to describe that without using a name that can be hurtful. You know, I think by saying the word that they used to me was racist, that my loved one interpreted that as me calling them racist. um, And that just felt really disrespectful to them. I mean, to be honest with you, it was racist. But like to say it really sort of shut down any kind of conversation. And, you know, it's, Typically better to use our I statements. Um, I feel that that joke really reinforces some negative stereotypes about people. And I'm wondering how that seems funny. Like those are different ways to say, you know, that's racist, but, mm-hmm. you know, saying it in a way that like people can hear And again, it doesn't always guarantee it, but that's why it can be really hard to to call people in on some of these things that reinforce um, these oppressive ideologies.
1: Yeah, I think that's so hard and was brave of you for even saying something in the first place when I think a lot of other people might have just let it go. You know, integrity is something that's really important to me and I value deeply. No, you know, and I've often defined integrity as, you know, doing the right thing, even when no one's watching. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that same lens can be used for calling in others when they say something offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, you can and should still comment if you see or hear something offensive in the presence of someone who is most impacted by that statement. But it's also important to call people in even when no one in the room is necessarily directly impacted by A racist, sexist, ableist, or any other offensive comment or joke.
0: Yeah. And I think to eliminate harm and violence, like we have to seek equity for all. Like we can't just focus on gender equity or racial equity. Both are really important, but all of these oppressive beliefs and situations are interconnected, right? To be racially justice minded, we also need to be thinking about all forms of oppression that race intersects with, including gender, sexual orientation, ability, age, religion.
1: Yeah, so I, there's a actually a really great graphic that depicts the difference between equality and equity. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to also keep in mind. Obviously, since this is a <laughs> podcast and you can't see the graphic, I'm going to describe it for you. So there are three people of various heights trying to watch a baseball game over the back of the fence of the field. So each is given a box of the ha- same height to stand on. The very tall person doesn't really need it, but uses it and is well over the fence watching the game. The medium height person who couldn't see over the fence can now see over the fence with the box. The very short person is standing on their box, but still not able to see over the fence. This is describing equality because everyone is given the same thing, one box to stand on. That's all equal, right? The Mm -hmm. same box, same height. The problem is that it's not very equitable because obviously one person still can't see the game. So the other side, we see equity being described as the person who's tall and doesn't really need a box, doesn't have a box. And because they could already see the game, they're fine, still watching the game. The medium-height person has a box and can see the game. And then the shorter person is given two boxes, so where before they couldn't hmm. see the game, they now can. And now they, all three people can see the game. So three boxes with an equitable outcome. I mean, why give the person who doesn't need a box a box right? when someone else... Needs a second box.
0: Absolutely. This is a powerful image and I think important to remember in our work uh, to prevent all harms. We also have this image in our show notes. And so if you're curious about what that looks like, please, you know, see our show notes um, and you can look at that uh, in real times instead of just hearing it described.
1: Daniel, can you share more about some protective factors?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that earlier. Um, protective factors and risk factors are not the underlying um, root cause of something, right? So risk factors are the conditions and circumstances or characteristics associated with an individual or their environment that may increase the chance that the individual may cause harm or experience it, right? So a risk factor do not actually cause the harm, but they increase the risk that harm could occur in any given situation, Right. So an example of a risk factor for someone who causes harm might include growing up in a violent environment or unhealthy beliefs about gender, race, sexual orientation, or people of certain religion. Right. Another example might be someone who is intoxicated with drugs or alcohol. Drugs and alcohol alone don't cause harm, as we know, but like they can increase the risk that harm can occur. Right. And so on the other end of the spectrum, you have protective factors. And so these are the conditions or attributes that individuals, family or communities or the larger society that helps people cope with stressful events and can mitigate or reduce risk. Right. So protective factors don't eliminate all risk for sure, but it's really because like they don't address the root cause. Like if someone has a risk factor for causing harm, then these might be mitigated by protective factors, like having a mentor who shows them a different way of coping with their emotions, or shares with them a different perspective about gender, race, or other things that, you know, counter harmful messages that they've received. Other protective factors that can reduce the risk of sexual relationship violence would be models of healthy relationships, understanding one's own boundaries and being able to implement them, or attending trainings like on consent. Additionally, having limits to alcohol and drug use, you know, could be a protective factor. These things help to reduce the risk, but they don't really guarantee that these harms won't occur because they don't directly address the oppressive, ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized level of oppression.
1: So in addition to talking about the underlying root causes of harm,
0: we're also going to be looking at protective factors as well. Yeah, that's why I'm so excited um, about doing this because – we're talking about topics that look at oppressive ideologies and how they play out in our communities, and in our institutions, and in our relationships, and how we like internalize those things. But we're also going to be talking about the protective factors as well. Um, we want to, you know, reduce risk. Um, we're going to talk about things like boundaries and communication, SDIs and consent to really sort of, you know, help with protecting and reducing the risk.
1: I really like that, and I'm looking forward to more conversations about root causes and protective factors. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at NYU.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback. As we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at NYU.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and
0: videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at NYU.edu. For anyone, NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S., Thanks for
1: listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Viney-Amisa, Zoe Raguzios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellon, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman.